Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, my name is Mike, Associate Director at the Institute of Policy Studies, and I'll be your MC today. Welcome to the Forum on Race and Racism in Singapore, jointly organized by the Institute of Policy Studies and the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies. We are very pleased to have you here with us today. Today's program will start off with a keynote address featuring Minister for Finance, Mr. Lawrence Wong, followed by a question and answer session with Minister Wong. Thereafter, we will proceed with a panel discussion and close the forum with a question and answer session with our panelists. We hope you will enjoy the program. Now, I would like to invite Dr. Shashi Jayakumar, Senior Fellow and Head of the Center of, Center of Excellence for National Security at RSIS to give his introductory remarks. Thanks, Mike. Singapore is by many measures one of the most diverse nations in the world. Within our identity as Singaporeans, there are several facets, language, religion, and race, to name three. This last point, race, is an inescapable fact of life in modern multicultural Singapore. Some would say it defines us. It also differentiates us. Singapore's modern founding fathers knew that it would be a tough task to mesh these disparate groups together. For them, the essence of being Singaporean meant a purposeful coming together, an overcoming of differences, but not a forgetting of these differences. Policy-wise, therefore, race permeates our society through the CMIO model, through GRCs, through the HDB ethnic integration policy. These are just examples. We can't escape these, just as we cannot shed our multiple identities that we have. We layer on these the idea of being Singaporean. Being this, being Singaporean, means many things to many people. To some it means food, to others it means Singlish, but it is also about much more fundamental things too, about a plural society, about multiculturalism and tolerance, and maybe more than tolerance, about acceptance of the other. And within this, racial harmony, or at least the striving towards it always, is foundational. There have been many incidents recently, much talked about, some indeed quite shocking, leading Singaporeans to question the degree to which these fundamental tenets still hold. One thinks, given these rec recent incidents, of the polarization increasingly seen elsewhere. As to these incidents in Singapore, which have involved different races, indeed different races being victim, different races being aggressor, when we talk about what's happened, there seems to be, in many instances, a sharp, uncomfortable edge to discussions. To some, it seems that we are less willing, less able to accept other points of view, even ones that might seem reasonable. Where to find the middle ground in all of this is not exactly clear. Why is this all happening? Why is it happening now? It's a sign of how important these issues are, issues that we should not shy away from, that IPS and RSIS have come together to hold this event, with Minister Wong speaking and taking questions from an online audience followed by an expert academic panel discussion. This forum is not intended to provide resolution on any of these issues, but to have a meeting point for respectful discussion. Hopefully, there'll be many more such platforms in future to have such civilized conversations, and not just for academics. We all have a stake on these issues. Minister Wong, if I could, could now invite you on stage to deliver your keynote address, please. Excellencies and distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, I'm very happy to join you for this seminar today. Lately, several worrying incidents have given us pause to consider the state of our racial harmony. In May, a Chinese man kicked an Indian woman in the chest while uttering racial slurs. Earlier this month, a Chinese man confronted an interracial couple saying they should date within their respective races. In the same month, a Chinese woman was filmed hitting a gong to disrupt her Indian neighbor's prayer ritual. And recently, a Malay lady was sentenced to jail for hurling racist insults at an Indian female commuter on a bus. These racist acts are unacceptable. I feel the hurt caused. Like all of you, I wish these incidents had not happened. Some have asked why we are experiencing this recent spate of racist incidents. They wonder if racism has gathered speed. 
I think we should see this in a broader context. The government monitors closely all incidents involving race and religion because we know how sensitive they can be. From our tracking, we know such incidents are not new. They were far more numerous earlier in our history, but declined gradually over the decades, although this year has seen significantly more cases than usual, most likely because of the stress of COVID-19. Now, such incidents don't always make the headlines, but racism still exists in Singapore. It's among us, in our streets, our neighbourhoods and our workplaces. In the past, racist incidents would likely have been resolved amongst the parties involved and behind closed doors. Nowadays, the cases are highlighted on social media and circulated more widely to a larger audience. Now, in a positive way, social media has helped to create greater awareness of racism here. This has made us, especially the majority, look closely in the mirror and reflect deeper about who we are and who we want to be. And we clearly cannot leave things as they are. We are better than this. Whether online or offline, we must hold ourselves to higher standards and tackle racism wherever it exists in our society. The question is, what do we do now? To answer this question, we must first understand our past and how we got here. Race is never an issue, easy issue for any society in the world, especially highly diverse ones like ours. It is highly emotive because the question of race is wrapped up with our identities, our cultures, our ways of life. The natural instincts of humans are to look out for people who are most like us and to keep a distance from others. It is not impossible to overcome such discomfort as we and other multiracial societies have shown. But we would be fooling ourselves if we believed that racial and religious harmony were the natural order of things. It does not fall ready-made from the sky. There is nothing preordained about a multiracial society. For Singapore, the question of race has been a fundamental issue from the beginning. To put it simply, if race did not pose an existential challenge, Singapore would never have separated from Malaysia and we would never have become an independent sovereign state. Our 23 months in the Federation showed the tendency of each race to emphasize its identity, its rights and its primacy, often at the expense of others. Against the grain almost, our founding leaders set out to build a Singaporean Singapore. As Mr. Lee Kuan Yew declared on August 9, 1965, we are going to have a multiracial nation in Singapore. We will set the example. This is not a Malay nation. This is not a Chinese nation. This is not an Indian nation. Everybody will have his place equal. But our founding leaders also knew that creating a Singaporean Singapore was not simply a matter of mouthing slogans. They knew we needed deliberate policies, carefully thought out safeguards and resolute efforts to ensure that minorities would be protected, that the majority would not abuse its dominance, that bigots and chauvinists from whatever race would be constrained and curbed. So the founding generation willed such a nation into existence, taking difficult and sometimes drastic steps to achieve this fundamental national ideal. They consistently refused to confine their political base only to the majority race to the exclusion of all others. They took firm action, including invoking the Internal Security Act against chauvinists of all varieties, including Chinese chauvinists. They made English a neutral language common to all, our working language, the language of government, and the main medium of instruction in our schools. They changed electoral rules to guarantee that minorities would always be represented in parliament and that no party could prevail by appealing narrowly to any specific race and religion. 
They amended the Constitution to create a Presidential Council on Minority Rights chaired by the Chief Justice with the power to reject any law passed by Parliament that infringed on the rights of minorities. Because of what they achieved, we are in a much better position today. The racial riots of the 1960s are thankfully confined to history textbooks. And Singaporeans of my generation and our children have experienced decades of peace and harmony. We are not perfect, and there's still much work to be done. But if we are honest with ourselves, I think we will acknowledge that Singapore is one of the few places in the world where people of different races and faiths have lived peacefully and closely together for more than half a century. I know not all agree with the policies we have put in place. For example, some believe the GRC system is not necessary, as Singaporeans can be trusted to vote for the best candidates of whatever race without the aid of the GRCs. But look at the United States, another polyglot society. There, the courts have intervened to ensure electoral districts with built-in majorities of African-Americans and Hispanics so as to have diverse representation in their legislatures. In Singapore, because we want racially integrated rather than segregated housing, we no longer have constituencies with built-in majorities of Indians and Malays. Instead, we have the GRC system to ensure at least a minimum number of minority legislators in Parliament. So whether it is America or Singapore, both have systems to guarantee the representation of minorities in legislatures. Both recognize you cannot have e pluribus unum, out of many one, by simply assuming the many don't exist. I respect the views of Singaporeans who believe we are ready to move beyond race and so think we no longer need the GRC system. Believe me, nobody would be more pleased than the PAP leadership, past and present, from Lee Kuan Yew and S. Rajaratnam onwards, if one day we no longer needed the GRC system to ensure sufficient minority representation in Singapore. But we are not yet totally immune to the siren calls of exclusive racial and cultural identities. Neither have we reached a post-racial state. Surely recent events have, if, in, have, if anything, confirmed our caution. This leads me to another important point. We did not set out to achieve racial harmony by creating a monolithic society. Our multiracialism does not require any community to give up its heritage or traditions. Ours is not the French way, insisting on assimilation into one master language and culture, speak French, accept French ways, and assimilate into French society. Instead, we decided to preserve, protect, and celebrate our diversity. Hence, we encourage each community to take pride in its own cultures and traditions. At the same time, we seek common ground among our communities and aim to expand our common space and strengthen our shared sense of belonging and identity. Our bilingual policy is a key plank in this approach. We believe that by affording our children access to the rich traditions that our vernacular languages carry, they would know who they are and wouldn't become pale imitations of Europeans or Americans. So we expand considerable efforts to preserve the Chinese, Malay, and Tamil languages, insisting school children study their mother tongues, pouring resources in to keep up, keep up standards in the vernacular languages, and helping to sustain the vernacular media. To this day, Parliament provides simultaneous translations in four of our official languages, though all our MPs can understand and speak English well. Why do we do this? It is an important practice which we continue to uphold, not least to let the world and our own citizens know that we are not to be confused with the West and Westerners, though English is our language of business and we are connected to the world. 
Some criticize our policies to preserve and develop our component cultures. They feel such policies make us more race conscious and detract from multiracialism. Special assistance plan or SEP schools are sometimes cited to make this point. I understand the concerns about SAP schools. We do want our young to grow up interacting with people in other communities and making friends from among all races. So we will continue to see how we can strengthen multiracialism across all our schools. But I will ask those who criticize SAP schools to consider, would our society be better off if standards of our spoken and written vernacular languages were to fall and Singaporean, Chinese, Malay, and Indian cultures were to wither and dissipate. For that is the primary reason for the SAP schools. They were pure Chinese medium schools before. We retained some of them in this new form so we can still have a sufficient number of bilingual and bicultural students, equally strong in English as well as Chinese. Similarly, we have programs in a few schools to enable our students to deepen their proficiency in Malay and Tamil and to nurture their bi bicultural interests. We also have madrasas, strong vernacular media, as well as a huge variety of Chinese, Malay, and Indian cultural organizations, from the Chinese Orchestra to the Malay Heritage Center to the Indian Fine Arts Society. Now, should all this be done away with on the grounds that they perpetuate racial consciousness and are not inclusive of other races, other languages, other cultures, other traditions? Obviously not. For that is not what we mean when we pledge ourselves to become one people regardless of race, language or religion. The Singaporean is not only the English-educated cosmopolitan, up to date with the latest trends in London, Paris or New York. The Singaporean is also our fellow citizens who are more comfortable in Mandarin, Malay, Tamil or other languages or who have different cultural perspectives and views. I might quote here what Prime Minister Lee Hsien Nong said in 2017 at the opening of the Singapore Chinese Cultural Centre. It encapsulates well how our model of multiracialism is not to be confused with French universalism or the American melting pot. We are a multiracial, multireligious and multicultural society, the Prime Minister said. This diversity is a fundamental aspect of our respective identities. Our aim is integration, not assimilation. No race or culture in Singapore is coerced into conforming with other cultures or identities, let alone that of the majority. Ours is not a melting pot society. Instead, we encourage each race to preserve its unique culture and traditions while fostering mutual appreciation and respect among all of them. Being a Singaporean has never been a matter of subtraction, but of addition, not of becoming less, but more. Not of limitation and contraction, but of openness and expansion. This is our distinctive philosophy of multiracialism in Singapore. We do not devalue diversity, but we accept it and we celebrate it. Multiracialism in Singapore doesn't mean forgetting our separate racial, linguistic, religious and cultural identities. It doesn't require us to erase our rich inheritances in favour of a bland and homogenised broth. Instead, it enjoins us to embrace our inheritances, respect those of others and go beyond them to encompass a national identity and shared purpose. I am reminded here of something that I had read by the late Kuo Pao Kun when I was at MCCY. He had likened culture to trees. They are separate at the trunk, but they touch at the tips of their branches where cross-pollination occurs and at the tips of their roots where they draw sustenance from the same soil. As Pao Kun observed, it's important to move higher and deeper to realise the beauty of pluralism. And this is what we are constantly trying to achieve. Go deeper to strengthen our cultural roots and at the same time reach higher 
to cross-pollinate with other cultures and thus develop a stronger shared Singaporean identity. Is this easy to do? Clearly not. But is it worth trying to achieve this? Yes, absolutely. Our distinctive philosophy of multiracialism underpins our rules, laws, and practices which we have developed pragmatically to meet our own circumstances and realities. Sometimes we say we must take into account race, for we cannot pretend that racial identities don't exist. So in national politics, we have been deliberate in making sure people of all races are represented. In housing, we have consciously ensured a balanced mix of ethnic groups and avoided racial enclaves. And on other occasions, we say let's go beyond race, let's be race blind. So in employment, in our education system, we have tried to give everyone, regardless of race or religion, equal opportunities. One key reason why our system has worked is because of the mutual understanding and trust forged between our communities. We did not get to where we are today through confrontation and compulsion. Nor did every community assert its own entitlements and press its claims against others. Instead, through mutual accommodation and compromise, we have found a balance that all can accept. No community has gotten everything it wanted. But collectively, we have achieved much more together than we would otherwise have attained by just focusing on our individual agendas. Everyone is generally comfortable, and we are all able to live harmoniously together. This is a delicate balance, but it is not a fixed position. The situation is dynamic. Society's attitudes and conditions continue to evolve and change over time. There is now a greater mixing and interaction between races in schools, at the workplace, in society. Younger Singaporeans have grown up less conscious of racial differences and more accepting of other races as compared to their parents and grandparents. More than one in five marriages in Singapore are interracial. Indeed, because of where we are today, there are Singaporeans who feel it is time to take a different approach on race relations, that the government should now work on the basis that we are a race-blind society and remove all rules and practices that underline race in various ways. Now, I appreciate these desires. Indeed, I share these aspirations. Perhaps I'm young enough to feel the idealistic instincts of the millennials and old enough to understand the caution born of experience of my parents' generation. But we can all agree that our multiracialism is not perfect and we have to keep working at it deliberately to reduce our imperfections step by step. Let me offer some suggestions on how we can go about doing this. First, we must recognize that in any multiracial society, it is harder to be a minority than a majority. This is so everywhere in the world. So it is important for the majority community in Singapore to do its part and be sensitive to and conscious of the needs of minorities. This cuts across all aspects of daily life. It matters to someone who faces discrimination when looking for a job. It matters when someone feels left out, when everyone else in a group speaks in a language that not all can understand. It matters to potential tenants who learn that landlords do not prefer their race. It matters to our students, neighbours, co-workers and friends who have to deal with stereotypes about their race or insensitive comments. These things do happen, not always and perhaps not even often, but sometimes they do. And when they do happen, they cause real hurt, which is not erased by lightly dismissing them as casual remarks or jokes. I believe the majority community in Singapore understands this. So I ask that we do more and take the extra step to make our minority friends, neighbours, co-workers feel comfortable, 
treat others in the way you would like to be treated, and by your actions, teach your children to do the same. Remind those among your family members or friends who may slip up from time to time. At the same time, I'm grateful that minorities have reciprocated by recognizing that the majority community has legitimate needs and concerns too. In this regard, it is important to realize that the Chinese community in Singapore is not monolithic. Sometimes people talk about Chinese privilege in Singapore. There may well be biases or blind spots that the Chinese community should become aware of and to rectify. But please understand that we still have a whole generation of Chinese Singaporeans who are more comfortable in Chinese than English and who consider themselves at a disadvantage in an English-speaking world. They feel they have already given up much to bring about a multiracial society. Chinese language schools, Nanyang University, dialects, and so on. What do you mean by Chinese privilege, they will ask, for they do not feel privileged at all. Naturally, many of them would object to being so characterized. This brings me to my second point, which is that we must continue with our approach of mutual accommodation, trust, and compromise. Let me be clear. I'm not saying that we should refrain from voicing our unhappiness or that minority Singaporeans should pipe down about the prejudices they experience. On the contrary, we should be upfront and honest about the racialized experiences various groups feel and deal squarely with them. We must continue to speak up and even be prepared to have uncomfortable discussions, not to start arguments, but to begin civilized discussions, listen to each other and understand all points of view. But we should not insist on maximum entitlements and rights for our respective groups, construe every compromise as an injustice that needs to be condemned, or put the worst interpretation on every perceived slight or insensitivity. Because when one group jostles aggressively to assert its identity and rights over others, it will not take long before other groups feel put upon and start to jostle back. We already see this playing out in so many places around the world. When one side uses identity politics to push their cause, it invariably emboldens another to up the ante and make greater demands. We end up fueling our worst tendencies, our tribalism, hostility, and vengefulness. And if we go down this path, insisting on differences over commonality, minority groups will not win, and the outcome will be most unhappy for the majority community too. So I hope all groups calling for change will be conscious about how they approach the matter. It is natural to want to be heard, to want to see the changes we think ought to happen. But let's do so in ways that expand the space for agreement, not narrow it, that deepens cross-cultural understanding, not cause defensiveness and suspicion, that appeals to the better angels in all of us, not instigate a them-versus-us dynamic. Finally, the government will continue to engage widely and to update our policies on race, as well as other policies that help to strengthen racial harmony in Singapore. Our policies are not cast in stone. For any policy, be it GRC, EIP, self-help groups, or SAP schools, we continually ask ourselves, what is it we are trying to achieve? Is the policy still relevant today? Can it be further fine-tuned or improved? And one current example is our review of Muslim nurses wearing the tudong with their uniform. This process of policy review entails detailed study and extensive dialogue between the government and our various communities. It cannot be rushed, nor should things be changed simply based on who shouts the loudest. Ultimately, any change must expand our common space and strengthen our racial harmony 
while allowing each community as much room as possible to go about its way of life. Take, for example, the ethnic balance in Singapore. Some say we should go beyond CMIO. But how would Singaporeans feel if the proportions of C, M, I and O were to shift dramatically? In fact, we have taken great care to ensure this balance remains stable for our citizen population, precisely because we understand how unsettling major changes can be to all groups, majority or minority. You can see in the latest census report how we have maintained these balance over the decades. At the same time, we have worked hard at in integrating new citizens to ensure they too embrace our values and way of life. Because while many new citizens are ethnically similar to us, they come from different cultural backgrounds, have not grown up or spent many years in our multiracial society, and will take time to fully appreciate or understand our multiracial approach. Around this Singaporean core, we have gathered transient population. They live and work here for a time, but will eventually return to their home countries. These work pass holders are crucial to our economy. They enable us to stay competitive, attract investments and create good jobs for Singaporeans. We control the inflow of these migrant workers. But it is not possible for us to ensure that their ethnic mix matches our resident population, nor that they meld seamlessly into our social fabric. So from time to time, this creates frictions and issues within, our, within and among our communities. We understand these concerns, and we continue to review and update our work pass policies too, to ensure they meet our economic needs, help Singapore to grow and prosper, and yet fit into our social context. Such are the realities of living in a diverse society, in a dynamic, globalised world. We have to make constant adjustments and repeatedly check to make sure we get the balance right. To conclude, this government will never waver in our commitment to promote harmony amongst all races and to ensure that all Singaporeans enjoy full and equal opportunities in life. Like our forefathers of all races who made this their home in 1965, we too are convinced that we must continue to strengthen our Singaporean Singapore and build an ever more perfect multiracial society. Even when some of our compatriots fall short or neglect to play their part in this vital national project, let's see them as fellow citizens to be brought along, not adversaries to be shouted down or cancelled out. Let us each be our brother's keeper, our sister's keeper, and let us move forward with a spirit of mutual respect and fellowship, educating each other about what matters to us, helping each other understand our different cultures, and finding the common stake we all have in one another. We must have the humility to acknowledge our multiracialism is still a work in progress, the honesty to recognize that not everyone will want to move at the same pace, and yet persevere to protect our multiracialism, cherish it, nurture it, strengthen it. Then step by step, we can approach ever more closely to our ideal, one united people, regardless of race, language or religion. Thank you. Thank you, Minister. We will now start our question and answer session with Minister Wong, moderated by Dr. Shashi Jayakumar. To our online audience, please submit your questions via the Zoom Q&A panel that appears at the bottom of your screen. Dr. Jayakumar, over to you. Thank you very much, Mike. Thank you, Minister. You gave Minister a very important, and if I may say so personally, a moving statement, a restatement of what it really means to be Singaporean. That's the, the big picture. We understand that. There are already questions coming in, and I think this is a testament to the large number of people who tuned in 
we've already started submitting the questions, and we're, we're grateful to all of you for, for joining in. If I could start with some of the big picture questions, if you sure. permit, we, and then we'll later go into shortly the, the mm -hmm. Zoom questions. I understand the aspirational aspects, the striving, the points that government has re reiterated time after time in the promotion of multiracial harmony. At the same time, I would share with you personally, I'm still a little bit concerned because I understand the aspirations, what we've been trying to do, but viewing and viewing the social media discussion concerning recent incidents, I start to wonder. Mm. You've mentioned certain cases, the interracial couple being, being abused by, by a Singaporean Chinese individual. And if you recall, Minister, Minister Shanmugam has said in the aftermath of that incident, he's not so sure anymore that Singapore is, and I quote, moving in the right direction. At the same time, as you yourself have said, government officials have over the years shown that we've made tremendous progress on this issue of progress on race. So which is it, in your view? Are we, in fact, moving in the right direction? Well, thanks, Sashi, for this question. I think let's look at it in the broader context. If you ask, are we better today than we were, say, 20, 30 years ago, or even when Singapore first became an independent nation, I think the answer is clearly yes. Just ask anyone who has experienced firsthand the period of racial and communal strife in Singapore. My parents are of that generation. They are in their 80s, and they will tell you, anyone in that generation will tell you, we have come a long way. Please, please cherish what we have today and never, never, ever allow those times of racial strife to come back. Mm. But does it mean that we are perfect now? Obviously not. Does racism still exist in Singapore? Yes, they do. And indeed, the recent spate of incidents are a concern. We should rightfully be very concerned about this because we cannot assume that progress will always move in one direction. There is always a risk that we will regress and we will move backwards. And so we really all have to do our part, double down, work even harder, at addressing race, uh, racial issues when they arise, evaluating our own behaviours, re-examining and reviewing policies, and as I said, constantly work together to create a more perfect multiracial society because this continues to be work in progress. Right. Thank you very much, Minister. That, that helps to clarify. If I, if I may, pardon the pun, zoom down a little bit more into to actual sure. specific, yeah. specific issues. The Lianhe Zaopao mm. editorial, which yes. has occasioned quite a lot of comment, yes. comment from the, the ground, comment from academics as well, as, as you know. The suggestion, and I don't mean to oversimplify what the editorial, which was nuanced, actually was saying, but the suggestion is that what's been happening recently is partly brought on by the stresses of COVID, partly brought on by social media, and partly brought on by thoughts and concepts from the West, including critical race theory. Is this a simplification of what's, what's going on? Would you or would you not agree? Well, Sashi, I read the Pao editorial carefully. They clearly made their stand explicitly that they uh, rejected racism and they found these racist incidents mm. unacceptable. There was no doubt about that. They offered some explanations about why these incidents could have happened. I don't think that they intended for these explanations to be comprehensive right. or that these explanations would obviate the need for us to do more? Certainly not. So clearly, all of us want to dive deeper, to do more, to understand better the reasons behind racism in Singapore and address it at its root. And so we must all work together step by step. It requires us to look at things carefully, based on our context, our circumstances, our realities, understand what the issues are, and then see what are the things, what, what areas can be improved. It could be policy, it could be behaviours, it could be institutions, but whatever they are, look at constantly improving and getting better. I think that must be the imperative, and that is the, I'm sure that was the objective and intention of the Pao editorial. I understand. If you permit me, zoom sure. down to a separate question, sure. even more, even more yeah. pinpoint. And, I, and I'll just ask the question. 
why can't an individual from a minority race be, be PM? Doesn't run, this run against mm. the grain of meritocracy as we understand it? Well, anyone in Singapore who wants to be prime minister will have to connect with voters, mobilize Singaporeans, and obviously lead the party to win elections. This applies to anyone, regardless of race. Mm. Now, the IPS surveys do show that a significant proportion of Singaporeans are more comfortable with a prime minister of their own race. Uh, this cuts across Singaporeans, across different ethnic groups. This is what the survey indicates. Mm. I wish it were not so, but the survey results are as they are. So a minority who wants to be prime minister should be aware of these attitudes. It doesn't mean that he, or for that matter, she, can't be a prime minister, but these are the realities on the ground. I should also say it doesn't mean that we should just accept these as attitudes and, as they are and say, fine, this so be it. We shouldn't accept these attitudes. We should instead work very hard to change them. And I certainly would look forward to the day when Singapore has a minority prime minister. Hmm. I would welcome that. I think many of us would, would look forward to the day. So another, if you, if you don't mind, a pinpoint question. Maybe you could share your views, in particular given your, your previous portfolio. Could you share your views on HDB's ethnic integration sure. policy? In some cases, and I'm sure you're familiar with commentary recently, some cases where a minority race member might want to sell his or her flat, but where the quota for the majority race has been reached in that sure. block or that, or that neighborhood. This might face difficulties, the individual in question. This disadvantages minorities. That's the perception, may well be the reality. Would you mind sharing your thinking sure. on this? Well, I, I certainly will be happy to say more. I, I spent quite a bit of time looking at this when I was in MND. First of all, what does our ethnic integration policy or EIP seeks to do? We try, if we apply it consistently to all ethnic groups, and we try very hard to achieve a balanced mix of ethnic groups in our housing estates. It's not just about the numbers, but the fact that by doing so, over the years, we have achieved an, a social mixing and integration in our housing estates, where people of all races can interact with one another more freely. And importantly, our children grow up together, they play together, they attend the same schools in the neighborhood together. That helps to build that sense of attachment, belonging, and identity as Singaporeans. I think that has been the outcome of our integra ethnic integration policies, mm. and we should appreciate that. There's tremendous value in it. What would happen without EIP? I have no doubt that we will end up with ethnic enclaves in many of our housing estates. Because you see this already in global cities everywhere around the world. Paris, New York, London. That's, this is the outcome. Mm. You will have segregation by race across estates, and minorities will be squeezed out. They will not have the opportunities to buy flats in mature estates where prices are more expensive. This will be the outcome. Is it, will we be better off? I, I don't think so. I don't think so that, that discarding the EIP will make Singapore better. Mm. But I do appreciate that there are minority owners uh, who do face difficulties selling their flats when they bump into the EIP limits. I recognize that. Uh, all this while, MND has taken an approach where if we see such cases, they appeal to HDB or the ministry, we would deal with them on a case-by-case -case basis, extending a whole range of flexibilities to help accommodate the request, make it easier, give them more time to sell, or even waive the EIP limits in exceptional circumstances. So we have been doing this. I know that MND continues to study the issue to see how what more can be done. So I would say, let's recognize the value of the EIP. Let's work to improve it, fine-tune it, make it better. Let's not discard it altogether and throw out the baby with the bathwater. Thanks, Minister. Could I take you to an issue which has been raised recently by 
commentators, including respected columnists, and that's the precise nature of the kind of calling out of mm. racist or abhorrent behavior that we've been seeing recently. This can be double-edged because there's calling out, and there's some calls for everyone, majority, minority race, to call out racist behavior in an activist manner, call it out where you see it, meaning silence is not an option kind of, kind of approach. Is there anything wrong with this? I don't mean to be too leading in the question, but the question is how activists should we be? Because there are in some situations, particularly overseas, where this very act of calling out leads to the manufacture of imagined uh, offense. So calling out can lead to different outcomes. Mm. What is your view on this? Well, I think we should be very clear that all, any form of racism is unacceptable. We should make a very clear stand. And when we see it, we should, in that sense, call it out. Mm. But how to do it is important. If a behavior is clearly discriminatory, hurtful, I think we must take a very firm stance. Mm -hmm. There should be no doubt about that. But there may well be behaviors which are accidental, ambiguous. And in calling out, I think we should also not rush to assume the worst of people. Right. And because this can easily lead to misunderstanding and cause things to, you know, get to worsen unnecessarily. Uh, in the end, it, it comes down to the attitudes and mindsets. How do we go about dealing with these sorts of issues? In any multiracial society, there will be imperfections, there will be hiccups, there will be lapses. You will see this on, you know, maybe not often, but it will happen. And we just have to find ways to address it, but do so in a spirit of goodwill. Mm. Um, today, the today newspaper had an article not too long ago where they talked about racism because this is one of the hot topics now, and they interviewed a whole range of people. I remember reading Mr. C. Kunalan, mm. our yes. former yes. national athlete and sprinter, and he said, uh, he was interviewed, and he said that he's also a pioneer generation. Uh, he said that you know, to live harmoniously in a kampong, you need, you need understanding and forgiveness. Mm. And that's the key. We, we need to approach these sorts of issues with understanding, with respect, not with an attitude of you know, wanting to divide and wanting to confront, but address it, we must, and seek to forgive one another if we do make mistakes. I understand. But if I may press you just a little bit on this, Minister, there's been some sort of sense from the ground. Maybe those who do not ordinarily speak out first, but possibly a sizable group, uncomfortable with this idea of activists calling out. And their argument, I'm simplifying, maybe oversimplifying their, their point of view, is that we've done quite well, very well, mm. as a multiracial, harmonious society up to this point since independence. And some things in terms of race relations, sensitive issues, should well be left alone. The perspective of these people who do not often speak up first is important too. So in the light of what you just said and the content of your, your speech, what would, would your message be to these individuals, Minister? Well, I would say I respect their views and I think it's, not, it's born out of the experiences that they have, which mm. is perhaps reflecting of a group of Singaporeans, perhaps the older ones who have gone through more difficult mm. times, they understand that race can be a very sensitive matter. And if you don't deal with race issues carefully, uh, they can be inflamed yeah. and things can easily spiral into negativity, racial tensions or worse, violence. So I think we should respect these views and heed their caution. And that's why I go back to what I said earlier in addressing these sorts of incidents, which we must and we should, let's do it carefully. Let's not just assume the worst of people yes. immediately. Um, let's be ready to forgive if the other side asks for forgiveness. And, and let's work together to expand the common space we have, always with the same objective, strengthen racial harmony, build on mutual understanding and trust, and expand the common space we have as Singaporeans. I think if we all share that objectives, we can move forward. Yes, Minister. 
If you permit, we will turn to the Zoom sure. questions now. There's yeah. been a tremendous amount of, of interest. And I must apologize to the online audience. We will likely be unable to take all your, all your questions, but I, I think we should take them. One of the issues has to do with, with schools, and there's been some recent reporting and individuals sharing first-person accounts of alleged racial uh, mm. incidents, racist behavior, including racist behavior by, by teachers. And if true, if verified, I think these are, these are quite shocking. It seems a lot from the reports, if they are to believe, that quite often these issues are not resolved. So uh, first question, how do we deal with issue of teachers who may, not, may or may not be overtly racist? They may kind of make insinuations certain comments about race, religion in, in a negative or pejorative way. Mm. And secondly, I think it's important, is there a better way for, a better channel for people to report these sorts of cases? Well. If indeed these allegations are true, I think they should be surfaced. They can be surfaced through the school principal, the school leaders, to the ministry, and certainly we will deal with them. I'm sh I, when I was in MOE, we've had to deal with occasions mm. of uh, such instances. Right. We will certainly follow up. And it goes back to what I said earlier. Let's look at the instance of what kind of, what the, the particular behavior. Some instances are perhaps ambiguous, accidental, perhaps a person had not realized it, because truth be told, we all have our blind spots and biases. Mm. And so perhaps the way to address these sorts of issues are by counseling the teacher or by counseling the student. Mm. And we can move forward. Mm. But some go beyond that. Some are mm. far more egregious. Mm. For whatever reasons, uh, the person may have intention to discriminate, and they may hold these views personally, never sort of uh, not, not so clear, clearly spelt out or not so obvious to people before, but then it shows up one time in the classroom or to, you know, in, in the school environment. And if we see this uh, and we know that this is uh, happening, then obviously we have to take a firm stance against that individual, whoever that person is. Yeah. Hmm. Yes. Another online question, I, I must apologize to the online audience in that some of the questions are closely related and I will not be able to share your, share your name and seek your understanding for, for this. And the question, I, I know you've talked about this in your speech, but it's such a popular question on the CMIO okay. model. It, it does help clearly with the provision of a framework as a tool of social policy, or social intervention, racial categorizations. But how do we prevent the conflation of the CMIO framework from, from that necessary policy tool vis-a-vis -vis or versus the multicultural mm. goals of, of Singapore? Well, I understand what the, the concerns that are raised. Um, and sometimes people make the assumption that policies that take into account race will detract from multiracialism. CMO, CMIO is often cited as one example. You make me more conscious of my ethnic identity, and therefore this detracts from what we are trying to achieve, which is a multiracial ideal. Uh, I, I appreciate that view. All I would say is, consider this. If we were to discard CMIO, does it mean that people will start forgetting about their ethnic identities or paying less attention to their ethnic identities? Will that happen? If we were to ignore racial differences, does that mean that the differences do not exist? It's not so clear to me. In fact, I, I, I would say, our policies that take into account race, whether it's CMIO, whether it's ethnic integration policies, have helped to strengthen our racial harmony. In some ways, in many ways, they have helped to make us less race conscious. For example, the fact that in our housing estates, we can grow up together and interact with one another quite freely, including in our schools. So we have to take this into consideration. But having said all that, as I mentioned in my speech, our policies are not set in stone, and we continue to review them. Even for CMIO, we made some changes a few years back yes. where we made it less rigid, and we introduced double-barreled double uh, race classifications. So whether it's CMIO, whether it's EIP, like I mentioned, across the range of policies, let's not uh, assume that these are all static and can never change. Uh, we look at each one of them carefully, understand why they exist, consider whether they are still achieving the objectives, consider 
the downsides, if any, how to minimize and mitigate these downsides, and see how these policies can be improved over time. Mm. Mm -mm. Can I turn to a question which has become uh, debated on the social media sphere, this issue of microaggressions. Mm. And of course, microaggressions can be experienced or indeed sure. suffered by, by any race, majority, minority. But the, the, the question pertains to the denial of rent to Indians on the grounds of smell. It's mm. a bit of a, a direct question. But I'm going to take the liberty to rephrase this somewhat or, or refine it because microaggressions can be felt by sure. in any context, almost any circumstance. And people are beginning to talk about it. I recall Minister Ong Kang talking about mm -hmm. it in, in a Facebook post some time ago. So the issue is how would Minister propose to bring a, a cultural appreciation to the lived realities, lived realities of life as Singaporeans? Well, this goes back to what we talked about earlier, that um, there will be blind spots and biases. All of us have that. Let's have the humility to recognize this. And we may not even be aware that, what, that something I'm doing is considered by another party to be a microaggression. How can we raise our awareness, be more understanding of each other's concerns? I think a key part of this is to build stronger relationships with one another. Because it's when you do not have that relationship and you start to have misunderstandings, you assume the worst of the other party, and then things can easily spiral downwards. Mm. So I think the basic sort of starting point is to start building, strengthening our community networks, yep. start um, developing more opportunities, more platforms for interactions between people of different communities and races. We do a lot of this. There, there is a lot that we, we, we do through different platforms, the interracial uh, religious confidence circles, all sorts of platforms. Sometimes people say, yeah, dismiss these sorts of things. They are cynical about them and say, you know, these are just events. What's the point? Mm -hmm. but, but there is great value in them because they are deliberate platforms to build social capital to build that network of relationships so that we can, over time, l understand each other better. Mm -mm. And, and that's what we, have, we, we try to do. Um, we have made progress in this regard, I think, but still more work can be done. Um, if you were to ask around, for example, anyone, uh, who are your close friends? Mm. I think most people would acknowledge that close friends are people within their own families, or their own ethnic groups. Yeah. And, and so there's still work that we can do to broaden our circles, to reach other communities. And by, doing, by strengthening these networks, we can potentially learn more, understand each other, and address these sorts of issues. I understand. I guess my question, and I think it's useful for you to mention IRCCs, which is just one of a plethora of initiatives, and there are grassroots initiatives on the ground itself, and there's good work done by other organizations, mm -hmm. the IRO, for example, interreligious. My, my question is on that. You have got the hard edge of the law, and sometimes the, the law and accountability, mm. taking certain individuals to account, will be necessary. Accountability, process, and consequences. But can or should the, the law be, be enough? Clearly, I can't speak for you, Minister. Answer is probably no. What else goes on in the superstructure which is not legal and not just process? Sure. Well, what the, the, the whole sort of um, network of relationships that I talked about mm. earlier are a big part of it. Mm. The law is important, certainly, but uh, law is not sufficient to address many issues mm. and to change mindsets and to change attitudes. That takes time, that takes hard work, that takes effort, it takes communication, engagement, relationships. So the building of that network is very valuable mm -hmm. because when you have that strong network of relationships, when an incident happens, when there is a misunderstanding potentially that can arise, you can bring those networks to bear in helping to bring parties together, bridge any misunderstandings or gaps and you know, address issues better. Sure. So, so I think that network of uh, social capital is crucial, mm -hmm. and we have been quite deliberate mm -hmm. in doing this through um, 
the various platforms you talked about, even in the way we design HDB flats. HDB is very conscious of trying to find spaces where we can foster and, and generate more social capital. So that's just one part of it. I think the law is important, but we do need to rely and build other ways to strengthen racial harmony in Singapore. Could I bring you back, Minister, and this is an account of a, a question from an educator, mm -hmm. so you would have had experience on this. It's a long question, and uh, with advanced permission of the person asking the question, because they are related questions, I will summarize it. There are pedagogies, and you'll be familiar, of course, around the world in different school systems to promote uh, understanding of diversity, to promote anti-bias education, deeper understandings of multiculturalism. So, of course, this is a portfolio you've moved on from, but uh, generally speaking, would the, would the government be interested or open to adopting pedagogies and translating them and contextualizing them for the specifically Singapore context? What, generally speaking, would be some of the interventions that would be useful to, to, to ensure that from a young age, maybe even sure. yeah, younger than, than what, what hitherto has been tried, mm -hmm. that people have this multiracial harmonious yeah. ethic yeah. ingrained in them? Yeah, in fact, there's an article in the newspaper yes, today there is, there is. talking about um, how young children, as young as preschool, yes. already exhibit these uh, preferences. Yes, a bit worrying, actually, the, the article. It, it's, it's a, again, a reminder that this is actually part of human instinct to be more comfortable with our own. Mm. I, I think that's not something we should, we should understand. It's, mm. It exists. But should we find ways, therefore, as the educator asks, pedagogies, approaches that can help us open our mindsets? Definitely, we should. And we should be open to thinking about what are the best ways in which we can engage and bring up children to appreciate that um, you know, we are all equal, mm. and regardless of race, language, or religion. Mm. And to start, if there's any bias or blind spots, start, start changing them, addressing them, even at a young age. What are the best pedagogies to do this? I, I'm not a professional mm. in this field. I'm sure there are many experts who will be able to share their views. But what's important is at the end of the day, not just transplanting them into Singapore wholesale, but understanding how they fit within our context, our circumstances, our realities, and apply them in the best possible way to achieve our, what we want to achieve. understand. Minister, we're having a dialogue now. It's extremely interesting. We could go on. We accept that there will be other dialogues. Sure. This is an ongoing issue. The exchanges, maybe we have to accept, even would be messy, necessarily so. Some may be messy, more than that, uncomfortably honest, to the point of being really quite uncomfortable. Within this, how could and should we move forward? How, how could and should we be do, doing better as Singaporeans? We do need to have dialogues about race. Uh, as you said, these can, may not be easy. They can be quite uncomfortable. But we should not pretend that there are no issues hmm. and that there's no need to talk because the issues do exist and the only way to address them is by engaging them and addressing them. How to go about these dialogues are important. I think we should go about them with an attitude of humility and openness. Recognize that people have different perspectives and views. And we should not go in to try and stereotype, judge, or force our views on others. I think that's not the way to start a conversation. So if we start a conversation with humility, with respect, with openness, seeking to find common ground and expanding on that common ground, I think we will be able to move forward. And you know, it sounds very difficult, but it's, it's possible to do. Think about how we do interfaith dialogues. Mm. Interfaith, I mean, people with different tenets of faith, but yet can come together, not forcing my beliefs on you, but again, seeking to understand, to find common ground, and to share and to build relationships. And I think if we take that same attitude when we have conversations on race, with empathy, with humility, with maturity and goodwill towards one another, we can make progress. 
That actually makes me think, Minister, of one or two points in your speech, which the ones which actually stood out for me, and you said, we are better than this. You also said, what do we do now? So I'm trying to put these two together, and I'm wondering, please tell me if I'm wrong, Minister, should we be bolder in our ambition, in our challenge to be a multicultural nation? Do what we need to stand for, and you spelled this out, should this be defended and strengthened further in a more muscular fashion? What, what is your view on this? What do you mean by muscular? <laughs> the the so, posture that, that, that we, we, we take, and of course, there's a little bit of the calling out, which as we've shown, as you've shown, can be, can be double-edged. Double so I, I, I certainly think we have to be very bold in making a stand for a Singaporean Singapore, hmm. because this is not just a good to have. This is existential for us. Hmm. Without a multiracial society and nation, we will have no means to hold Singapore together to survive, let alone prosper. Mm. So we must have the courage and conviction to move forward as much as we can. But if muscular means being aggressive, mm. being confrontational, pushing or, you know, seeking more radical approaches, thinking that the way we go about doing things, which is through mutual understanding compromise, is passé. Yes. And that now there are new ways of doing it that are more radical, extreme, and we might get, achieve more using these means. If, I think if that's muscular, I think we would be um, moving in the wrong direction. I see. What about, Minister, the issue of civic activism, the youth, the grassroots, they're getting more involved. You've mentioned interfaith dialogue. They're young people, and I think this is heartening, getting together, discussing very frankly, that, that's more the religion side, beginning to happen for the, for the race too. If not managed properly, I suppose this could lead to further cracks opening up fissures if people want to be mischievous. There's no sign of that yet. But what do you think of the general development of this unstructured, not government-led, discussion on this issue, and indeed, in future mm. Singapore, should the response to racism be increasingly led by these groups? I would say all of us have a part to play, right? Civic groups, youth groups, ground-up efforts. Uh, let's all, because w this is such an important matter that all of us have a major responsibility and a major stake in it. So by all means, for the groups that wish to find platforms to talk about this, uh, I would encourage them to do so. Mm. Uh, the government will, you know, is committed to finding more, more platforms, more space, safe spaces where we can have these um, constructive dialogues and engagements. And we'll be very open to hearing from people what they think uh, their views are on how we can create more of such safe spaces, be it online or offline, face to face. Some of it can be done in closed doors, some of it can be done in an open dialogue like this, but the key, whichever format, let's, let's do it properly, let's do it to ensure the engagement and the dialogue moves us forward, that it edifies, it builds up and does not tear down. Thank you very much, Minister, for sharing, and, and not just sharing, sharing so frankly on this sensitive and emotive set, set of issues. Uh, I'm sure, judging by the many questions, many of which we could not answer, many would like us to, to go on, and I suppose discussion will go on on various platforms, online media, columnists will write as well, and there'll be further academic discussions. There's an academic panel to, to follow as well, but unfortunately for the timing for, for today, we've come to the end of the time that we have. Thank you again, Minister, for, Thank you, for joining Sashi. us and sharing so frankly.